<laughs> as, as you get older, your I don't know what goes first, your hearing or your eyesight. It seems that both have gone at the same time for me. Like, I just, all at once, it's like, boom, I can't hear if there's any noise in the, around me. I can't hear what you're saying. And I can't see things either. So, <clears throat> yeah, old age is not going to be good to me. Uh, we're doing this series, um, Lesser Known Stories, and today uh, we're talking about Jonathan. How many of you know Jonathan, Saul's son? How many of you love Jonathan? He's like one of your favorite characters. How many of you have no idea who I'm talking about right now at all? Um, but Jonathan, I, I, I called this sermon Worthy But Not Called, um, and that's a, almost a counterintuitive um, phrase, worthy but not called, because it just seems like that just should not happen. Uh, but what you have with Jonathan, it, he's stuck between these two figures, okay? He's the son of Saul. Saul is the first king of Israel. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about Saul and his story. But um, Saul has this interesting distinction. He is called to be king, and he's not worthy. He, he, we're going to see his story a little bit as we, as we go through the scripture. But um, he, he messes up over and over and over and over, and yet he's the one who's been called to be king. And then you have... Uh, Jonathan, who's his son, who's worthy, but he's not called to be king. And then you have David, who is called and worthy. And so Jonathan is kind of, he's not the focus um, of anybody's story, really. He, he kind of has this interesting thing where um, he doesn't get a whole lot of time in Scripture. Um, and yet, what you do see of him is that he is faithful, he's brave, he's courageous, he's obedient, he's humble. He, I mean, he has all these wonderful characteristics and, and virtues, and, and yet, for some reason, he's just not the one God is going to call to be king. And what makes him really one of my favorite characters is that um, he's okay with that. Um, he, he actually steps into the role that God has, has given him graciously, and he, he fulfills his call, which is unique to him, um, and he's going to do it uh, in such a humble way that it's really, really amazing. And so there's a lot to learn from his story, um, but as we get into it, we're going to kind of jump into the end of the story, um, and then we're going to go back and, and pick it up from the beginning. But the end of the story is 1 Samuel chapter 23. Let's stand as we read God's word this morning. And uh, this is Jonathan um, seeking out David when David is running from Saul. Saul is trying to kill David, um, but Jonathan actually goes to David to encourage him um, during this time. And it says this, says, David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose, went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, also knows this. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. David remained at Horesh. Jonathan went home. And Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the character 
the, the virtue, the strength, the, the faithfulness of Jonathan. Um, Lord, the unique story that uh, is his life, Lord, help us to learn uh, all that you want us to learn from him. Uh, and help us to uh, apply that to our life, to glorify you, that you would be lifted up and honored um, in the way that you deserve, Father. We thank you that uh, you continue to teach us and guide us and strengthen us and mature us uh, all the way through. No matter what our circumstance, Lord, we have the opportunity uh, to learn and grow and to be faithful uh, to give you glory. And so, Lord, help us to do that today as we worship, as we hear, and as we understand your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, you, you can't really understand Jonathan very well unless you understand um, the situation with Saul. And you can't really understand the situation with Saul unless you understand what's going on with Israel. Uh, and so what's happening is that uh, for like 400 years or so, uh, Israel w- was taken out of Egypt. They were given the promised land and Joshua led them into the promised land. They had one generation that was faithful. Okay, when Moses died and Joshua led them in, uh, they had one generation that trusted the Lord, that was obedient to the Lord, that began to just do all that God had called them to do, and, and they're beginning to take the land that God had given them. Um, but then that generation dies, and the next generation, it says that they didn't know what uh, God had commanded. It was as if uh, they had quickly just kind of forgotten all that God had done, even though their parents had walked through all these things, walked through the wilderness and walked through the, the, uh, the blessing of receiving the land, all that, they, they did not seem to understand. And so you enter the period that we call the Judges. And in the period of the Judges, what you have is God saying that he wants to be king of his own people. It's what we call a theocracy. God is king and he's going to raise up leaders uh, to rescue Israel when they fall into oppression or warfare or hard time or some other difficulty, he's going to raise up uh, a leader called a judge. And that can be somebody from any tribe of Israel. Um, there's no particular distinction other than, uh, in fact, not even a spiritual distinction. Sometimes the judges are, are not even that great of people. Uh, they just happen to be the person that God calls and, and uses and gifts and empowers to rescue uh, the Israelites out of, out of their, their predicament. And so for 400 years, that's what's been going on in Israel. Samuel, who is also maybe a lesser-known character, although we do kind of know a little bit about Samuel, he's the last judge, and he's also a prophet, and he's also a priest, and he's getting older, and what happens with him is that his kids uh, are not faithful like he is. And so the people, they say, Samuel, um, you're going to die soon, like, thanks a lot, okay, I knew that, but, um, but we don't want your sons to be in charge, so we want a king. And now, in Deuteronomy, uh, Moses had actually predicted or prophesied that this was going to happen, that, that Israel would want a king eventually. It took him about 400 years or so for this to happen, but finally, eventually, that does happen. And so, uh, they asked for a king, And God gives them the king that they want, not necessarily the king that they need. And so he raises up Saul. Saul is the one that they would expect. He is, he's tall and he's, 
He's, uh, he's powerful and he's handsome and he, you know, all these different things that they think a leader should be. You know, he's got all the outward attributes that they think that, that they want for their king, the person that's going to be the face of Israel to the nation, the person who will lead them into battle, the person that will kind of you know, draw all the people together and, and be one people. And they get Saul and almost immediately, not quite immediately, but almost immediately, uh, they have this, this issue where Saul is not the faithful, godly person that uh, he needs to be. And so God rejects him as king pretty quickly. Um, So he's raised up, he begins to lead the army, and uh, right away he he makes a couple of really terrible mistakes. One is that um, he's leading his men into battle, they're fighting against the Philistines, and uh, they're getting ready to go into a, a battle. And uh, Samuel is late. And so before they go into battle, they always carry the Ark of the Covenant with them into battle. You know, that's like the, it's God is with us kind of idea. And they also will perform sacrifices and things to, to you know, um, pay for sin or make sure that they're all in a good spot spiritually before they go into battle and all those things. And so Samuel's late. Saul's like, well... I can do it, you know, why not? I'm the king, I'll, I'll just bring that animal to me and I'll slaughter it and I'll sacrifice it and I'll say the words and, you know, I've seen it done a million times. I, uh, and so he does that and while his hands are still dripping with blood, here comes Samuel. He's like, what have you done? You, you are not supposed to do this. You're, and it's not just a mistake. It is Saul saying, uh, I'm going to do things the way I want to do things and I don't care what God's rules or what his law says. And Samuel says to Saul, because you've done this, even though this, the kingdom could have been established in your family, it won't be. And that's the first time that, that the, the uh, kingship is being kind of taken away from Saul. He's going to be king until he dies, uh, but he's being told that the, he's not going to continue. His family's not going to continue in this line. Then, then the other thing that happens is that um, Saul is told to go into this area, to this city, and, and destroy everything, kill everything, um, burn everything. It's all devoted to destruction is what they call it. And uh, he's like, okay, great, I'll do that, fine. And he goes in, and he doesn't kill the king. He takes him prisoner, and he doesn't kill all the animals. He takes the best of the animals. He doesn't kill all the people. He takes, you know, and so Samuel comes along. He's like, what are, what are you doing? He says, uh, I did exactly what God told me to. I destroyed everything except for the best. <laughs> He's like, that's not what God told you to do. He said, destroy everything. He said, yeah, yeah, that's what I did. I destroyed everything except for the best things. <laughs> and they're just having this like miscommunication kind of thing. And it's like, well, Saul is proving over and over he just is not going to obey the Lord. He's not going to be faithful. He's not going to be obedient. And again, God just says, you're, you're done. You're not going to be the, the anointed king. And so from that, you have this other thing that's happening, which is that um, Jonathan is Saul's oldest son, and he is one of the leaders of the army. So Saul is leading 2,000 men, Jonathan is leading 1,000 men, and they're, they're doing battle. It says that, that there's this, uh, this vicious warfare between Israel and the Philistines, and they're just constantly at at war with each other in this time. Um, But the Philistines are 
stronger. They, they are, um, they're more powerful. They're oppressing the Israelites. And here's what, we, what it says is that they, the Israelites don't have any swords. They have two swords in the whole army. Can you, can you imagine? Your whole army, you got two guns, <laughs> two generals, take, your, take the guns, everybody else is going out with their rubber bands and, and rocks or whatever they have. I don't know what they have. But, so, because here's what's happening. The Philistines will not allow an Israelite um, bladesmith or Israelite uh, blacksmith to exist in the land. Whether they killed them, whether they intimidated them, whether they drove them out of business, whether they, whatever, okay? They, they wouldn't allow them to exist in Israel. So all the Israelites had to go to a Philistine uh, blacksmith to get their, their farm tools sharpened. That's what it says. That they would take their shovels and their pitchforks and their whatever, their implements, their plows, and they would take them to the, the Philistine uh, blacksmith to have them sharpened. So there's only two swords. Jonathan has one. Saul has one. Everybody else has, I don't know, a shovel, a sharpened stick, um, a hammer. I mean, whatever they could grab out of the barn. <laughs> like, okay, let's go to war. And so this is what they're doing. They're going to war, but they can't really do anything because they don't have the, the, the tools that they need to be able to fight effectively uh, their enemies. So... What happens is in chapter 14, this amazing story of Jonathan, who is basically fed up with this stalemate between the Israelites and the Philistines, and they can't really seem to accomplish anything. He says, okay, um, I'm just going to go by myself and see what happens if I go up against this this unit on this hill. Um, If the Lord wants... He can use me, and we can win. It doesn't matter if it's a, a few people or a lot of people. I mean, with, we can have our whole thousand soldiers go with, or I could just do it by myself. God can rescue out of few or many, right? And, and he's going by what Scripture says, that God told the Israelites, if you would be faithful to me, if you will follow me, if you will obey me, then one person can put a thousand to flight. But if you're not with me, if you're disobedient, then a th- one person will put a thousand of you to flight. So Jonathan understands that it really isn't about how powerful he is or how many swords they have. or it- It's really about God being with them. That, that is the whole issue. Now, this is probably a good place for us to say, hmm, maybe this is, inter- this is something I need to be aware of. That it's not about my job or my intelligence or my ability or my ambition or whatever strength I think I have. It's, there's one thing that is going to make you succeed above all other things, which is whether or not I am faithful to my God. Am I, am I walking with the Lord? Am I putting my trust in Him? Am I doing what He wants? Am I discerning His will? Am I, am I with God? It's not really about whether or not God is with you because God is willing to be with you. You know that? He's always willing to be with you. He wants to be with you. The question is, are you with him? And so when you say, yes, I will be with him and I will trust him and I will do what he wants and I will obey his will, then you can have confidence in whatever you do. I can discern his will. If he says, go here, I'll go here. If he says not to go here, I won't go there. And I'm going to do what he wants. 
you begin to discern that it's really about trusting him, not so much about trusting yourself. And this is what Jonathan does. He goes in, chapter 14 of 1 Samuel, goes into this situation. He says, God wants to rescue out of, you know, one person or two, then he can do that. And here's how we'll know. And I don't know how he knew this, or if he just made this up or what, but he said, if they tell me to come up there, then I'll know that God's with me and we can just destroy them all. If they say, wait where you are and we'll come down to you, then we're in big trouble. <laughs> we're dead. And I don't, I just wonder, does he know or does he think that I'll, I'll just run away if they say, stay there? <laughs> or are they just going to let him come down and kill him? I, I mean, it's, it's almost like, you know what? Something happening would be better than what's going on right now. So he gets there, he's trusting the Lord, and they say, come up. And he's like, okay, this is it. God is with us. He's going he's gonna to do something amazing. And they go into this thing. And Jonathan, with his one sword, he begins to just slaughter everybody. He's just killing everybody in sight. And his armor bearer's coming along behind with his sharpened stick or whatever he's got. And it's like just putting him you know, out of the misery. And so <laughs> this begins this huge battle where God puts the, the fear and the panic of the Lord on the Philistines, and they begin just to scatter. And Saul, he says, all right, we, we got something going on here, and let's pray, and let's discern, and let's get the ark, and let's do a sacrifice, and let's, let's roll the dice and see what God's saying. And, and, uh, and all this is going on around them, and they're like, we got to get busy doing something here because he says, all right, let's just go. And so they begin to um, defeat their enemies. But here's what's, what's weird. I don't know. Saul ha- finds a way to ruin even the good things that are happening. <laughs> you ever see that happen? It's like even here, just hand it to you on a silver platter of victory, and you're just going to spoil it. And he, he makes an oath that nobody in his army can eat food until the evening time, until he you know, destroys his enemies. Like it wasn't even about Saul, but he made it about Saul. This is what Saul always does. He makes it about Saul. And so what happens is Jonathan isn't told the oath. So Jonathan, he's, you know, going around killing everybody. He's just, he's so awesome. So, um, and he goes into this, this timber and there's some honey and he, a honeycomb or something, and he takes his staff and he dips his staff and he, he takes the honey. I mean, this seems so messy to me. I don't know, but he eats the honey and he's like, ah, oh, I feel so much better. And then the guy next to him, like probably should have said, hey, Jonathan, hold on a second. There's an oath going on here you don't know about, but he doesn't say anything till what? After he eats it. Thanks a lot, buddy. Way to look out for me. So Jonathan eats and then the guy's like, yeah, you shouldn't have done that. And so Saul, that night, is like, let's just keep, you know, going after the Philistines all night. Let's just make it an all-nighter. And uh, he's like, before we do, the priest comes along and says, before we do that, let's, let's make sure we know that this is what God wants. And they hear nothing. They're like, okay, what's going on? So long story short, um, they find out Jonathan broke the oath, Saul's oath. And Saul's ready to kill Jonathan. He's like, well, you broke the oath. You got you to gotta die. Sorry, that's, that's the rules. And the men 
are like, no, Jonathan's the reason why we had this victory to begin with. We've been kind of sitting under these these uh, pomegranate trees for like like last few months doing nothing, and now we have a finally a victory. So we're not killing Jonathan. And all through this whole story, Saul just looks like a fool. Like he just cannot do anything right. No matter where he turns, he's just making a mistake. And Jonathan is spared. He's rescued by his men. Um, but the whole thing just ends. That's how it ends. It's like, okay, I guess we're done. <laughs> That's all we can do. And uh, the very next thing, what we see is David is anointed king, and he's just this little shepherd boy who's the eighth son of his you know, family, uh, has no reason to think that he should become king. Samuel comes along, anoints him as king, and then in chapter 17, 1 Samuel, uh, we have David and Goliath. Anybody heard of this story before? David and Goliath? Here's what's interesting to me. David and Goliath, everyone knows about. I mean, everybody in the, whole, in the world for all time. Like, this is the most famous uh, one-on-one combat um, scenario that, that everybody knows about. And yet, what Jonathan did just a few chapters earlier is just as significant just as miraculous, just as faithful, just as obedient, just as brave as what David did against Goliath. Would, I mean, I, that's how I read it. Maybe you don't see it that way. I see it that way. If I'm going against a whole unit of an army by myself, isn't that just as significant as this one kid going against the giant? But we almost never talk about what Jonathan did. We always talk about what David did. But Jonathan, here's what I'm saying is, Jonathan's faith and Jonathan's bravery and his obedience is just as significant as David's. And in fact, I wonder if David was inspired by what Jonathan did to do what he did. Like he saw that one person can go against this army, so why can't one person go against this one other person? Even if I'm just, you know, young and small and he's this huge giant. But if God's with me, God can do whatever he wants. And this, that mentality is what David had. And I think that he maybe was inspired by Jonathan's original act of faith. And then what happens in chapter 18 is that Jonathan sees what David does and he is inspired by him. And it kind of becomes this reciprocal respect that they have for each other. So chapter 18, it says this, as soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, David, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Jonathan saw in David what he'd wanted to see in his father. Faithfulness, obedience, bravery, um, trust, willingness to put yourself on the line He saw that in David, and he loved it. Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Saul took David and wouldn't let him return. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him. He gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. There's only two swords. (laughs) Now, they've been you know, defeating the Philistines, maybe they've grabbed a few of their swords. I I don't know. But he gives him all of his robe and his 
armor and his sword and his bow and his belt and all this stuff, and he puts it on David. And what's happening is that um, whether he knows it or not, Jonathan, he is transferring the rights of the firstborn from himself to David. It's, it's like a birthright. It's the law of, of primogeniture, which is a weird word that I'll probably never say again. But what that is in Israel's law is that the firstborn son of the family gets a double portion of the inheritance. That was Jonathan's right. He, he had the law of primogeniture. And so he transfers it to David, meaning that the rightful king, Jonathan, who should inherit the throne from his father Saul, he is, I don't know if he realizes that he's doing this, but he is doing this. He's giving it to David, who has been anointed spiritually, has been anointed by Saul or, Saul, or uh, Samuel as the king, and now he's giving him the legal right to become king. He is, effectively, he is standing aside from his role, and he is saying, David, you have the right to become king, and he's transferring that birthright to him. That's, that's pretty huge. Um, that is an act of humility and an act of discernment, an act of understanding that is almost is so unique in Scripture or in, in life or anywhere that we almost miss it. When you read through that, you just you think, "Whoa, they're best friends. They're like b- blood brothers." You know, they just they just have this wonderful bond. But you have to understand something: that Jonathan is probably, probably at least twelve years older than David, if not more. What what you know is that David is certainly not twenty years old yet uh, when he fights Goliath. When this is happening, he's got to be. He, he might be 18 or 19. He's definitely not 20 because he's not in the army. And when you're 20 years old, you're in the army in Israel. So he's younger than 20. But then Saul takes him and, and puts him into service in his, in his army. So he's probably at least, you know, an older teen. He's not like 12, okay? If he's going to be, you know, hanging out with the army and doing stuff with the army and kind of learning some stuff and he's going to go to war pretty soon, he's, he's, he's probably 18 or 19. But Jonathan, he's been serving with his father in the army for a while. And so you have to be 20. And he's already been leading a thousand men at this point. And he's been doing war. And he's been going into battles. And he's been... So he's not like the same age as David. He's probably at least 30 at this point, if not a little bit older. So you got a 12 to 14, 15. Some people even say 20 to 30 year age difference. I don't think it's quite that much. I think he's probably... 15-year age difference or so. But you have a guy who isn't looking at David as a peer. He's looking at him as almost a father figure or an uncle. And he's saying in himself, God has called him to be king, and he's called me to step aside and let him be king. And I'm okay with that. Now, I want you to just hold that in your head for a minute because I want to walk through a couple more things. But that... That is the essence of the whole issue of the moral of Jonathan's story. That he had the kingship in his hand and he willingly gave it to the person he believed God had called. Even though he was faithful, even though he was 
brave, even though he was, uh, he was a godly man, he still was willing to let somebody else take that role that he believed God had called to it. That's significant. So what happens is um, he, he uh, makes an oath uh, there, and then he's going to make two more oaths. He's going to take two more covenants uh, that he's going to establish with David. Um, over in chapter 20, here's what's happening is that after David begins to um, be successful in the army and he's going into war and he's conquering and he's, I mean, he is so successful that this, they begin to sing songs about Saul and David. They're like, Saul has killed his thousands. You heard this? And David has killed his what? Tens of thousands. And that becomes such a, a, a sticking point with Saul. He's so furious. He's jealous about what David's, you know, gaining all this respect and all this love, and people think he's great, and they only think Saul is okay, and Saul's just so mad about that, he wants to kill David. And so he actually begins to plot with Jonathan to kill David. Now, Jonathan's already made an oath that David should become king. Jonathan's already established a relationship with David. And so when Saul begins to plot with Jonathan to kill David, then Jonathan says to his father, he says, David, he's faithful to you. Everything he's doing is for you and your kingdom. All the battles that he's fighting are for you. He hasn't done one thing to go against you. You can trust him. And he actually convinces Saul to, to not kill David at that point. Saul believes him. Saul trusts him. Saul says, yeah, you're right. And so he, he relents and he actually brings David back into service and they begin to have a good relationship again for a while. And that doesn't last. And eventually what happens is that Saul uh, begins to plot to kill David again. And this time he doesn't tell Jonathan because he knows that Jonathan is on David's side. To the extent that... <laughs> here's what's weird about Saul. Now, Saul, poor guy. I mean, he has a, an evil spirit, right? There's an evil spirit tormenting him. But uh, he, he is so mad at David, and he wants David dead so bad that when Jonathan begins to defend David, Saul actually attempts to kill Jonathan. You remember that? And he's sitting there, and he throws a spear, try to nail Jonathan to the wall. Like he literally wants to kill his own son just because Jonathan uh, defends David to him. Jonathan apparently is quick like a cat, and ninja skills in play, knocks the thing aside, and uh, I guess he forgives his dad or whatever. He's like, Dad, you're so nuts. Like, come on. And so, um, but now he can't, he can't convince Saul not to kill David, so he goes to David and he tells him, my dad's, he's out to get you. You got you to gotta get out of here because I can't, I can't save you this time. So, uh, David begins to run away from Saul. He's fleeing and he's hiding and he's all these things. And there's all the, all the stories. You, you've probably heard all these stories. He's in the cave and then Saul comes into the cave and, and David cuts off a piece of his robe while Saul's using the bathroom. And Right? You know all that stuff. And, but here's what's interesting, okay? Chapter um, 20, he makes another covenant. He says, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, may the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. That's right in the midst of Saul coming after David, trying to kill him. 
But he makes a covenant with David. So that's the second. That's a confirmation. And then you have the one that we read just a minute ago at the end in chapter 23. It says, David saw that Saul was coming to seek his life. David was in the wilderness of Ziph at Horesh. Jonathan, Saul's son, arose, went to David at Horesh. Now, I don't know if you're catching this. Saul is looking for David, right? He's trying to find him. He's chasing him all over the place. He's trying to, to narrow down, like, where is he? And then you have this statement, Jonathan just gets up from his easy chair and just goes right to David. You know what I'm saying? He knows exactly where David is. <laughs> he, just, he just makes a beeline for David. And here's what, what you understand. David has had to confide in Jonathan where he is or where he will be or where he's traveling, or how he's moving. He tells Jonathan. He trusts Jonathan to the extent he knows that he will not betray him to Saul. They're so closely knit together in their character, in their minds, in their souls. He can tell Jonathan whatever, you know, his secrets, whatever his plans are, and Jonathan will keep that in confidence. He's not going to tell Saul. He's not going to betray him to his own father. Saul can keep looking around. Saul's running around all over the place. Here is, here's Jonathan like, I know exactly where he's at. He goes right to him. And he makes a covenant with him again the third time. And he says, don't fear. The hand of, of Saul, my father, shall not find you. Uh, you shall be king over Israel. I shall be next to you. Saul, my father, knows this. He knows that, that you're going to be king. David's anointing as king did not threaten Saul. Personally, Saul was going to be king until he died. He's the anointed of God. David's anointing as king threatened Jonathan. That threatened his ascent to the throne. And Jonathan's in in his humility, in his faithfulness, in his discernment said, I want you to be king. I will actually help make a peaceful transfer of power from my father's throne to yours I will actually bridge that gap when it comes time. When Saul dies and it's up to me, I will step aside and I will help you become king. That's what he's saying. He, he knows that God has anointed David to be king and he wants to just serve in the role of a general, a cabinet member, a counselor, or something he wants, to, he wants to actually be there to help David succeed as a king. And what's interesting is that Jonathan actually dies with Saul in a battle at uh, uh, Bethshean. And um, David actually, it takes him seven years to become king of Israel. He becomes king in a region, but he doesn't become king over all Israel for seven more years. And I don't know. I mean, part of me thinks that if Jonathan would have lived, he could have helped David become king over all Israel right away because he would have brokered that peace agreement and said, I've given my, the rights of firstborn to David and he's king. And he could have actually you know, applauded that and helped that process. But on the other hand, because Jonathan was godly and faithful and, and brave and, and worthy, um, it's possible the people would not have allowed Jonathan to step aside. Can you see that too? They might have said, why would we want David? You, you are every bit as 
as awesome as David is, and you're the son of the king. So maybe, maybe he had to be removed that way. I don't know. I, it's a toss-up in my mind. But what's not a toss-up in my mind is the, the reality that Jonathan knew something that we need to learn. That doesn't matter what your circumstances are. It doesn't matter what your position is. It doesn't matter what your, your um, anticipation, your expectation, your, your, your sense of, of what you think you should have or get or be worthy of or experience. Whatever position God has put you in, this is what the New Testament says, wherever God has called you, Remain in that position and serve him in it. Don't seek to change your situation, thinking that if I just had a little better situation, then I could serve God better. Or if I just, if I, if my life was a little better, or if I had a, an easier job, or if I had a, a nicer, you know, financial portfolio, if I had the promotion, if I had a little bit, you know, less stress, or I wasn't quite as busy, or if, if my schoolwork wasn't quite as demanding, if my, if I had better friends, if my marriage was a little bit better, if, Whatever your situation is that you think that if it were improved that, that you could then glorify God, but until then, you're finding yourself just kind of frustrated and angry and resentful and I don't know how many people are in that situation. I, I look around and I, I think that it's a lot of people. It's a lot of people that look at their life and they say, if I just had this, if I could just be this, if I could just accomplish this, if I had this degree, if I could get this job, if I could move from this place to that place, if my marriage would just not be in the position that it's in, then I would be happy, right? Then I would be satisfied. Then I'd be content. And we're always chasing that contentment like it's this next thing, and we never quite get there because... I don't know if it's an illusion or not, but it's, it's, it's an attitude of your heart that I'm not satisfied and I'm, I'm just not going to be happy until or unless. And that thing is never going to happen. I'm, I'm sorry if I'm hurting somebody's feelings right now, but that thing that you think is going to make your life better, that that'll be the day if that just happens, it, it doesn't ever come. Because it's not really about your circumstance, it's really about your heart in your circumstance. And when your heart in your circumstance decides and is committed to praising God, glorifying God, doing what he's called me to, honoring him, being faithful to him, then what happens is, according to Paul in the New Testament, he says, I've learned how to be content in in any circumstance, whether I'm well-fed or hungry or, or wealthy or poor or or whether I'm cold or warm or if I'm in prison or free or if I'm able to do what I want to do or I have to do what other people are telling me to do, I've learned how to be content in that circumstance. I can glorify God from a jail cell. I can glorify God from the pulpit. Whatever the case may be, wherever I am, that's my ministry. That, That should be our attitude. Wherever I am, that's my ministry. If I'm a stay-at-home mom or if I'm working 80 hours a week, that's my ministry. And those two things actually are probably the same thing. (laughs) 
if I'm going to school, if I'm in a place where I feel totally alone, or if I'm surrounded by people, that's my ministry. If, I, if I'm struggling, then that's my ministry. If I'm doing well, that's my ministry. It, your situation does not need to change for you to serve God where you are. Amen? This is what Jonathan so uniquely understood. It, it, even though he was worthy, it wasn't up to him to decide who's going to be king. He just had to get in God's plan. And I think here's where we're at. If you're in God's plan, agreeing with his plan, you're, you're in God's plan. But if you're agreeing with his plan, you're in the, the absolute best possible place you can be. You can be wealthy, successful, and everything can be going well. If you're outside of God's plan, <laughs> your life is a mess. You've got to get with his program. Jonathan was right there in the center of it. And he didn't have to be anybody big and important. Most people didn't even know who he was. And yet he tells such a great story. And that's going to be most of us. <laughs> the world's not going to remember Luke Dunn in 50 years. It's just not going to happen. Unless I write a really great bestseller that sticks around for a while. It's not going to happen. <laughs> and that's okay. You're faithful in your place right now. You're going to make an impact on some people that that's eternity right there. Amen? Father, we thank you. We get to play the part that you put us in. And sometimes, Lord, it's a great part. Sometimes it's not the part we wish. Uh, but, Lord, there's something for us to do right here, right now, wherever we are. Um, Lord, we pray for open hearts, open minds, open uh, hands, Lord, willing to do what you call us to, um, humbling ourselves, Lord. Jonathan tells a, a story about Christ. He, he, uh, he did not grasp for something beyond. He didn't grasp to be equal with anybody. He was willing to serve. It's like your word says that that should be our attitude, like Jesus, finding ourselves as a servant just to be willing to do what you've called us to. So we don't always know what that is, Lord. I pray that your spirit would reveal it. Lord, there are so many people um, that are willing to serve, to, to step out, to speak, to, to live a life that would honor you. Lord, I pray that you would show each and every one of us what your will is, how we can honor you in the place that we find ourselves in. And Lord, you can use that um, to do something exponential. And we pray that you would in Jesus' name. Amen. I just want to invite you this morning, if you're struggling with understanding your situation, um, it may be this is a moment where you say, God, regardless of what's going on around me, I'm going to praise you. And maybe that's your commitment. I'm just going to praise you in my circumstance this morning. And, and I don't know what that looks like for how to serve you, but I'm willing. And if that's your commitment or to the cry of your heart, then we're just inviting you to come and just make that a, a statement of faith at the altar this morning. Let's stand and